that you brought us here this morning. Help us, Lord, to listen to your Holy Spirit. Father God, let us yield to that. Thank you, Lord, for the word. I ask, Father God, that the word would just permeate our, our hearts and our minds and our body on the subject of heaven, the afterlife. I thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace each day. Father God, help us to be transformed daily, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be knowing, Father, one day you'll come back and take us home to be with you. But before then, Father God, let us do the work you call us to do. Let us do the Great Commission. I thank you, God, for your grace. I thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The real eternal realities of heaven and hell. Right now, we are looking in a mirror that gives only a dim reflection of reality, but one day we shall see reality face to face. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. What happens after I die? Everybody wants to know the answer to that question. All of scriptures points to God's sovereign oversight of the timing of, of life and of death for every person. In Job chapter 14, verse 5, for example, we are told that a human being days are determined. The Hebrew word for determined in this verse carries the idea of something being engraved on stone. We might think of our time allotment on earth as being set in concrete by God. Our time allotment is a sure thing. We cannot die sooner than God's appointed time for us, nor can we live longer than God's appointed time for us. This verse also affirms the number of his months is, that is with you, that is with God. This is a simple way of saying that the number of our months is under God's sovereign control and oversight. And then Job says this, you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, likewise informs us that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God not only is summarily determines how long each individual live, but also how long each nation will survive. Famous last words, a fascination with what people say their last words, the things people say right before they die, reveal a great deal about how they view life, death, and their belief about the after death. After death. Louis B. Meyer, the famous American uh, film producer with MGM, said at the moment of his death in 1957, he said this, nothing matters. Nothing matters. This seems to be a cry of a despondency because his dying words illustrate the primary truth of the book of Ecclesiastes. Without God in one's life, all is futile. All is meaningless. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. And death is the end. Charles Darwin, founder of the evolutionary hypothesis who died in 1882, was heard to say right before his death, 
I am not the least afraid to die. He has no sense of accountability to a creator following death. Saddam Hussein, who was executed by hanging in 2006, said right before his death, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is God's messenger. Hussein had firm hopes of going to the Muslim paradise. In the Muslim view, paradise is a sensual place of pleasure where faithful men can have up to 72 beautiful maidens at their disposal and eat and drink and enjoy full bodily satisfaction. Instead, Hussein entered into a without Christ eternity with a destiny in the lake of fire. Life on earth is short, right, church? But life in heaven is long. It's eternal, amen? It therefore makes good sense for we as believers to take a little time to think of the timeless truths about heaven and the afterlife. Put it another way, we Christians are wise to live our short lives on earth in view of our imminent transition to our long lives in heaven. So this reality, this reality is reflected both in the Old and New Testament. In the book of Job, chapter 14, verse 1, we read that a man is, who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. And then Job urged God, remember that my life is a breath. Job, chapter 7, verse 7. The psalmist likewise affirmed to God, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands in a mere breath. Psalms 39.5. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Psalm 144, verse 4. The psalmist laments, my days pass away like smoke, Psalm 102, verse 3. Just as a, a puff of smoke quickly disappears in the air and disappears, so human life seems to vanish all too quickly. In the New Testament, James was well aware of the Old Testament teaching, and he says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James chapter 4, verse 14. Now, these verses represent three notable realities. One, we appear, that is, we are born. Two, we live in a short time frame. And three, we then vanish, that is, we physically die. Peter expresses the same truth in this metaphor of the grass and flowers in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, when he says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers falls. So this verse finds ample illustration of our, of our lives. All we need to do is pull out a few albums and see what we look like five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. And you know what? The glory does fade really quick, right? It qu the more you present life 
is informed by the glorious truths of heaven and hell and afterlife, the more you will gain an internal perspective that will help you navigate the difficult, difficult circumstances you face in life. Here's the question. Why is it important to think about the afterlife? Huh? Why? Well, popular pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about the future. What you truly believe about the life beyond or do not believe about it determines your loves, your motivations, your goals, and how you direct all of your energies in this one. It cannot help but do so. In Scripture, death shapes people's views, view of life. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, for example, we read, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go. I'm about to go to the way of all earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. The way of all the earth is a way of describing the reality that all people die. No one is exempt. Joshua, when he was a little older, he used similar terminology when sharing some vital, final words with his people. In Joshua chapter 23, verse 14, this is what he says. Now, I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Again, the way of all the earth points to the reality that people die. But Joshua also mentions that God fulfills his promises. God will certainly fulfill all of his promises to us Christians regarding what lies in store for us in the afterlife. For to me, for to me is to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 24. Paul, Paul's desire was to die so that his spirit could depart from this earthly body and go to, to heaven with Jesus. As Bible expositor Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, when Christ is your life, death is not your enemy, and you have the assurance of being with Christ when life ends. As he earthly life was drawing to a close, Paul informed his young apprentice, Timothy. And he says this in the 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. He says this, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. That is, the time had come for his spirit to depart from his physical body and go to heaven. Paul was prepared for that moment. Theologian Paul Enns makes this note. When the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he was only about a month or two away from being executed by beheading. And he knew it. It was in that circumstance, the mental framework, that Paul wrote the confidence, upbeat words 
that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safety to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what? Paul had no doubt that the Lord would bring him into heaven at the moment of his death. You and I, you and I had that same assurance. A couple of weeks ago, I made a trip to the dentist, and uh, I was waiting in the waiting room, waiting for the uh, attendant to come get me, and I just remember what a uh, friend said, who is a pastor also, when he went to the dentist. So the dentist folks know that he's a pastor of a church, and this is what his experience at the uh, dentist happened. This is what happened. This is what's happening. He says, as I was laying back in the dentist chair, my mouth wide open with all the kinds of utensils in my mouth, and the technician leans over me like says this, hey, hey, so what happens after I die? And I said, it all depends on how much you hurt me. Now, I do know this. We don't need dentists in heaven, right? You may need them in hell, but we don't need them in heaven. Everybody wants to know the answer to that question, right? And you know what? The Bible tells us that everything you see is temporary, right? And, you don't, and the things you don't see is going to last forever. The eternal realities are things that you don't see. The things you see right now are all temporary. If they're material or, or, or physical, they're not going to last. Your body, <laughs> sorry to tell you, this is not going to last. That's obvious, right? The trees, even the mountains, this building, it's going to erode, be gone. Everything that material fades away. But things that are going to last are the things we cannot see. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18 says this. Our bodies are gradually decaying and becoming weaker. Anybody want to give a testimony to that? Right? It hurts. But our spirits inside of us are growing stronger each day. This little troubles that we face here on earth are getting us ready, check this out, for an eternal glory that will make all our troubles seem like nothing. Now listen to this. The things that are seen don't last forever, but the things that are not seen are what? Eternal. That's why we keep our minds on the things we cannot see. This morning, we'll be looking at the reality of heaven and the reality of hell, but today, I think I'm going to focus on the reality of hell, okay? But the first, there are two of the eternal realities that God wants us to understand. What are the realities of life? What are the realities of the universe? And the first reality of life is this, and your outline, God made you to love you and wants your love back. God made you to love you, and he wants you to learn to love him back. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the first reality of life. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, I love you with an everlasting love. 
and with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. The second great reality of life is this. You are made to last forever. You are made to last forever. One day your heart's going to stop, and, and that's going to be the end of your body. But guess what? It's certainly not the end of you. You're going to keep on going. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says this. He has planted eternity in the human heart. That's why no matter how good things are on this planet, there's still this longing in you. At some point in your life, you're going to go, there's got to be more than this. The third reality is that God has prepared two eternal places. Two eternal places. Heaven and hell. That's in your outline. Number three, heaven and hell. Heaven is, is real. Hell is real. And by the way, there's not just a state of mind, of being. They're not some kind of morphosis. They are literal places. And who, and who is heaven prepared for? It says, for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. Why? Because this is not your permanent resting spot, right? I'm grateful that we don't live forever on this planet. Why? Because this planet is broken because of sin and suffering and sorrow and sickness and evil. Nothing works on this planet. No relationship is perfect. No job is perfect. Our bodies don't work perfectly. Everything's broken on this planet because of sin. But hell is also a real place. Notice what the Bible says. Jesus says, then he, which is God, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41. This morning, I want to ask some questions and hope I can get through them. What is, what is hell? Why does hell exist? What is it like? How do I avoid hell? And what to do once I know I know all this information, okay? Are you awake? All right, here we go. First, what is hell? Hell is a real place, okay? It's a real place where human beings who reject Christ will join Satan and his fallen angels in this eternal place of suffering. The scriptures assures us that hell is a real place, but hell was not part of God's original creation, which he, is, he, he called it good in Genesis chapter 1. Hell was created later to accommodate the Satan and his fallen angels who rebelled against God. Rome, uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. In some versions, the Old Testament including the King James, um, the New King James version, version, the message, the word hell translates the Hebrew word sheol. Sheol. Sheol can have different meanings in different contexts. Sometimes the word means grave. Other times it refers to the place of the departed in contrast to the state of living people. The Old Testament portrays sheol as a place of horror. Psalms chapter 30, verse 9, where there's weeping 
and, and punishment. Job chapter 24, verse 19. So when we get to the New Testament, we find that a number of words relate to the doctrine of hell, and it would seem that Hades is the New Testament counterpart to Sheol in the Old Testament. Like the rich man during the intermediate state, enduring great suffering in Hades, which is found in the book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Another word related to hell is Jehenna. Jehenna, Matthew 10, 28. This word has an interesting history. Uh, because for several generations in ancient Israel were committed in the valley of the son of Hinnom. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10. Atrocities that included human sacrifices, even the sacrifices of children, in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3, 33, verse 6, and Jeremiah 32, 35. And these unfortunate victims were sacrificed to the false Moabite god, Molich. Lake of fire, lake of fire or, or burning sulfur, Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, tells us that the beast and the false prophet, the two leaders who came into power during the future tribulation period, will be thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And this takes place before the beginning of Christ's millennium kingdom, that the thousand-year period following the second coming of Christ. Another thing is notable here is the eternal fire. Say eternal fire, church. Eternal fire. Jesus, Jesus often referred to the eternal destiny of the wicked. He says this, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Because you know what? It's better for you to enter life crippled and or lame that with two hands or two feet, to be thrown into the eternal fire, Matthew 18, verse 8. And here's the question. What precisely is the fire of hell? You know what? Some believe it's a literal fire, and that might be very well the case. Others believe fire might be a metaphorical way of expressing the great wrath of God. And then Scripture tells us this. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, his wrath is poured out like fire. Nahum chapter 1, verse 6, who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire. Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, and finally, God said his wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Now, how awful is the fiery wrath of God? Scripture tells us, refers to the destiny of the wicked, all right, as the fiery furnace. Jesus said that the end of the age, the holy angels would gather all the evildoers and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gashing of teeth. Matthew 13, verse 42. Again, there's a difference between fiery furnaces on earth and firing furnaces of hell, furnaces of hell, excuse me. On earth, when one throws debris in a furnace, uh, it's utterly consumed, right? The debris turns to ashes. This is not the case for those who suffer eternally in hell. 
for they never turn to ashes. They are not destroyed. And this is a terrible thing, church. This is a terrible thing to think about because the scriptures are very clear that the wicked suffer eternally in hell. Mark chapter 9, verses 47 and 48. Here's the second question. Why does hell exist? Say that, church. Yeah, okay. There are two fundamental reasons. Because sin and evil exist. Sin and evil exist. There are some people that want to deny the existence of evil. They think that actually the world is full of people that, that are basically good. That human beings are fundamentally by nature unselfish, always kind, always good, and always thinking about others. I want to tell you, have you turned on your television? Have you gone to Yahoo News? Check out all the stuff on there. If you go to, to uh, YouTube, Facebook, the world is filled with broken relationships, broken promises, rape, abuse, child molestation, all kinds of evil. I just read the other day uh, in New York City, a suspect who hit an Asian man with a hammer has 47 prior arrests. That's a lot of arrests for a person. Threatening killing sprees when she comes out of prison. There are wars being waged throughout the world. You have the Russians invading the Ukraine. Russians are bombing the cities, killing civilians, women, and children, and there seems to be no end of this horrible atrocity. And it goes on. The world is filled with evil. It's all around you. And at times, it's outside your door. Fundamentally, the Bible teaches that it's my nature to not think about you. It's my nature to be selfish. And it is your nature to be selfish. You think about you more than anybody else. You're not naturally thinking what's best for the other people. What's best for the world? What does God want me to do? On the other hand, you're thinking, what do I want to do? What's easy? What's convenient? What would I like to do? What would make me look good and great in people's eyes? Well, maybe you lived 75 years ago in a little house on the prairie or the Waltons on the farm, okay? You might think that people are basically good, but with all the media today that you can see, the world's filled with evil. And evil things happen. It happens all the time. It was true in the day of Noah, right? And it's still true today. Genesis chapters 8, verses 5 and 6. The Lord observed the extent of people's wickedness, and he saw that, that all their thoughts were consistently and totally evil. And he, that's God, was sorry. He was sorry that he had ever made them. He was sorry he had made the human race, and it broke his heart. God looked down uh, at the world in Noah's day, and he goes, hey, what a mess they've made of this. What they, what they do to themselves, what they do to each other, what they do to the planet I just gave them. They're all really messed up. They messed up the whole thing. They've screwed up everything. David asked the same question in the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And David says this, Lord, who may enter your holy tent? Now, holy tent is just a euphemism or analogy for coming into your presence. It's heaven. It says here, Lord, who may live 
on your holy mountain. And here's the condition. Only those who are completely blameless and innocent and those who always do what is right. I don't know about you, but I don't fit that category. I am not blameless. I am not innocent. I do not do what is always right. So I've got a problem. All right? I got a problem. There's no, I have a problem. There's not a snowball's chance in hell, me getting into heaven, unless God comes up with plan B. Plan B, right? I love plan B. Because heaven is perfect. And I stopped batting a thousand about age one. And by the way, you did too. And the Bible says we've all blown it. We've all sinned. We don't measure up to our own standards, much less God's. So there is a place for evil to go into eternity. If I'm to last forever, I'm not perfect. I've got another place to go. There's sin and there's evil in the world. There's a third reason for hell, and that's because, number three, God is holy and just. Say that, church. God is holy and just. He is holy. That means he is perfect. He cannot sin himself. And he, he is just, and that means he believes in what? Justice. And you know what? He settles the score. He always does the right thing. The Bible says that one day God's going to balance the books, okay? God's going to bring justice to the world. God is going to do the right thing, do the right, the, excuse me, God's going to right the wrongs. He's going to settle the score, and he's going to even the odds. And he's going to balance the books again. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but people get away with all kinds of stuff on this planet. Bad stuff. In fact, people always, people get away with murder on this planet. Life is not fair. Is that correct, church? I don't know if you notice this or not, but bad things often happen to good people. And good things often happen to bad people. And the people who cheat and steal and lie and rob their entire lives become often become enormously successful, and they get away with it, literally with murder. While other people who try to do the right thing and live the right way, things don't work out in their lives all the time. Life is not fair. David said in Psalms chapter 27, verse 13, I would have despaired if I hadn't believed in the goodness of God. In other words, looking at the world, if I just look at it and go, hey, this is not fair. People do bad things and get away with it. And people who do good things don't get rewarded for it. If I didn't believe that one day God's going to settle the score, that God is just, and he's going to tip the scales, and he's going to even it all out, and there will be repayment and justice, it just wouldn't be right. Solomon, who talks about this, and he's, he's complaining. He says, God is holy and just, but I thought about the things that are done in the world, a world where some people have power, where some people have power and others have to suffer under them. Around the world, there's places where evil people have power and other people suffer as a result. And then he says this, I've seen the wicked buried and in, and in their graves, but on the way back from the cemetery, people praise them in the very city where they did their evil. What's wrong with this picture? He says it's useless. Then he says this, 
Why do people commit crimes so readily? Because crimes is not punished quickly enough. In other words, here on earth, you do something bad, you can get, you can get away with it, right? Crimes are not punished quickly enough. A sinner may commit a hundred crimes and still live. That's just not right. And one day, one day, church, God is going to settle the score. The Bible says this, for the Lord is coming. The Lord's coming, church, to judge the earth. Are you ready? He will judge the nations fairly with his truth. And by the way, he's the only one who can judge fairly, right? Because he's impartial, right? Now, the Bible says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 10. God will do what is right. God is a righteous God. That means he always does what is right. And he will bring suffering on those who make you suffer. He will bring suffering on those who hurt me, who made me suffer. And he'll give relief to you who suffer as well. And he will do this when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven to punish those who reject God. Who say, I'm going to be good on my own. I'm going to run my own life. I don't, I don't need God. That's what some folks say. I don't need God. I, I'm going I'm to do it my way. I'm not going to do it Jesus' way. Nah, nah, nah. I, you know, to punish those who reject God, no, nah, I'm not going to do it my way. But it says here, those who do not obey the good news about the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord. That's pretty messed up. Here's the last phrase I just said. Say, separated from the presence of the Lord, church. That's the number one characteristic of hell. Separated from the presence of the Lord. People don't realize how bad that is because, you know what, we have the Lord right here. The Holy Spirit's with us, in us. It's, it's in us. Imagine that gone. Imagine the presence of God gone on this planet. I don't know about you, but that's frightening to just think about. Number three. What is hell like? You know what it is? Total separation from God. Total separation from the Father. It's really hard to explain because we don't have the human experience to explain it. It's kind of like trying to explain the internet to, the, to an ant. Okay? If you had never eaten or seen a piece of pizza, gluten-free that is, how would you explain it? Huh? How would you explain it? So it's really kind of hard. Jesus actually talked more about hell than he did about heaven. We're going to talk about heaven next week, okay? Come back. But what is hell like? Sometimes you hear these guys preaching on hell on television, right? And it's hell, fire, and brimstone. They're sweating, and they're running around all the churches. We're going to hell. You're going to hell. Just getting all excited. They're all sweating, and they're yelling. When you listen to them, they, I guess they want people to go to hell. They got all excited. But what is hell like? The Bible describes it as a place of torment. I don't know about you. Sometimes you get in the morning, your back and your shoulders hurt. Multiply that by a billion. In fact, Matthew chapter 8, verse 12 says this, In darkness they will cry out and grit their teeth in pain. It's like going to the dentist every day, having a root canal. That's, that hurts, right? And, of course, your image of hell, and the Bible talks about this, this fire, and things like this. But do you know what the worst part is, church? Hell 
is total separation from God the Father. Total separation. That's the worst thing about it. It means I'm totally apart from God's love. Totally apart from God's grace. Totally separated from God. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be separated from God and lost forever. What is hell like? Think about this. It's, it's the total separation from God. Then it's the exact opposite of everything God is. We know that God is love, right, church? He is love. That is, that's his nature. God is love. What would it be to live without God completely? It means no love. The Bible says there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. And the opposite of love is what? Is fear. You know what it means to live without love in your life? It means you're lonely all the time. That's hell. It means you're scared to death all the time. That's hell. So how do I avoid this place, hell? Is there any way for me to absolutely know for certain I'm going to heaven? Here's the good news, church. Are you ready? Yes, you can absolutely confident with confidence know that you're going to heaven and the bible tells us how to do it how do i settle my destiny and john says this first john chapter 5 verse 13 i write this to you who believe in the name of the son of god that's the door okay that's jesus so that you may know and not guess not wonder not hope was settle an absolute knowledge that you already have life Yes, eternal life, church. God says, I don't want you guessing. If you go out to the mall today, you ask somebody, hey, where are you going to go when you die? And they say, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. Right? You guys hear me now? Okay. Friends, hope is not enough. It's too important. It's too important to know, not know for certain, right? Only a fool will go all through life unprepared. What we know is inevitable, and that's death. There was a recent stat that shows the concerning deaths globally in this world. And it's pretty interesting. 65 million people die each year in the world. It's 170,000 each day, 7,425 each hour, and 120 each minute. United States population is about 124th of the world population. That's 320 million, million of 2.6 billion. Now, in the States, 2.6 million people die each year. That is 7,123 each day, 237 each hour, and five each minute. There's a lot of people dying. A lot of people are not going to be going to him. I'm going to hell. So that tells you, that tells you that the world that we live in is, is going to end. We're going to die someday. But this is what I have to say. I'm going to die soon, but not too soon. I hope I last for a while. But you're going to die too. And we all know 
that's going to happen. But the thing you can do, there's a choice that we can look at. Here's the fourth reality, and it's important. Guess what? You get to choose where you'll spend eternity. You get to choose where you spend eternity, church. You get to choose where you're going to go after you die. Okay? And that's something we all know. Not hope to, but we know. It's your choice, right? This is the same kind of choice that God gave to Israel. He says, today I'm giving you the choice between a blessing and a curse. You'll be blessed if you obey the commands of the of Lord your God, or you'll receive a curse if you reject me and my commands. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15, 15 and 20 says, See, I have set before you today life and good or death and evil. He says, here's a choice. You can choose between doing good and life, or you can choose doing evil and death. He says, if you obey my commandments by loving the Lord your God and by walking in his ways, his ways, not yours, then you'll live and you'll multiply and I will bless you. But if your heart turns away from me to worship other things, ah, it ain't going to happen. Why would anybody worship other things besides God? Think about that. Because we want to. You can worship your car. You can worship your career. You can worship your status or sex. You can worship your salary. You can worship your possessions or positions or power or prestige or popularity. You can worship yourself. Everybody has a God. Even the atheists have a God. He says, if your heart turns away from me to worship other things and to serve them, then you will perish. Therefore, choose what? Life. And you get a choice. Choose life that you may live. Amen? There's no chance. There's no second chance after you die. All this time, we give all, we give all an opportunity to, to, to do something today. What does it take to get to heaven, church? What does it take to get to heaven? What have I got to do? You say yes to Jesus Christ. Yes to Jesus. Jesus only, not anything else attached to it, but just Christ. Faith alone in Christ. We don't add stuff to it. People like to add things to it. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Next week, I'm going to talk about heaven. All right. And so I want us to all stand. So I'm going to close this up. What does it take to get to heaven? Jesus is the answer. This morning, if you haven't made Christ your personal Savior, and um, you want to be saved today, you want to be born again, don't delay. The moment you die, you're either going to go straight to heaven or hell. It's a choice here on, earth, on this earth you can make. And you can do that today. You can come forward if you have not been. Uh, you can commit yourself to Lord Jesus and make him your Savior. God's doing everything to make sure you get to heaven. Anybody this morning want to be saved? Beautiful. Church, God has given us eternal life, amen? And this life is his son. 
and he who has a son has life, and he who has, does not have a son of God does not have life. That's about as clear as I can possibly get it, right? One day, you're going to stand before God. You're going to stand before Jesus, your Savior, who died on the cross. And this is for all of us here, all the believers in this church who are saved. And you'll see the nail prints on his, on his wrists. And he's going to say to you, and he's going to say to Pastor Joey, what did you do with your life on earth? He's, he's not, you know, he's, you say all kinds of stuff. He's not going to be interested in hearing, I joined the country club, right? I joined the PTA. Um, I joined the hair club for men, and I'm a client, all right? I joined Save the Whales. I joined any other social or service organization. He's going to say, Pastor Joey, did you join my family? Did you join the body of Christ? Did you join my church, which I died for? Did you actively participate in the mission of the church? Or did you just come to be a spectator, bench warmer? You joined everything else. You didn't join my body, my mission for my church, my family, that I'm going to take with me forever. What were you thinking? Jesus says, if anyone acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will openly acknowledge that person before my Father, amen, which is in heaven. But if anyone denies me here on this earth, I will deny that person before my Father in heaven. Because believe means more than head knowledge, church. It means I trust in, I rely on, I surrender to, and I commit myself to Jesus. It's more than head knowledge. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, that these truths presented to us, that we would uh, take it, uh, live by your word, surrender ourselves to you. I also pray, Father God, for those family members that we have that are not believers, that we love them and pray for them, that someday they will know you, and that this way they can um, not go to hell. It's real simple. Because in hell, it's total separation from God. There's no relationships in hell. There's no friends in hell. It's lonely in hell. And Satan's there when he gets ready to be banished to that awful place. And I ask, Father God, that we be sensitive to others and pray for those who are not saved. I thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you.